For a very long time, America prospered. This prosperity cost millions of people their lives. Now, not even the people who are the most spectacular recipients of the benefits of this prosperity are able to endure these benefits. They can neither understand them nor do without them. Above all, they cannot imagine the price paid by their victims or subjects for this way of life, and so they cannot afford to know why the victims are revolting. This is the formula for a nation or a kingdom in decline. For no kingdom can maintain itself by force alone. Force does not work the way its advocates think it does. It does not, for example, reveal to the victim the strength of the adversary. On the contrary, it reveals the weakness, even the panic, of the adversary. And this revelation invests the victim with passion. This is the Green Majority, and those were the words of James Baldwin from his 1972 book, No Name in the Street. It's easy to see how it relates to the current uprising in the United States that has been sparked by recent lynchings, but is really the result of decades of murderous police oppression. But at the risk of greenwashing Baldwin's rhetoric, it can also be connected with our worldwide ecological decline, since in the name of material comfort, we have also tried, over the past few hundred years, to bluntly leverage oppressive force against the non-human world. We have tried to subdue non-human nature, rather than working with her, or them, because we have thought that the best way to satisfy our desire for material prosperity would be through conquering and controlling everything. We have thereby spread our fragility throughout the globe, and in this process, deceived ourselves into thinking we were actually in control. Ironically, as Baldwin points out, we have now become the victims of our own prosperity, because we don't really know why we wanted it, it hasn't led us anywhere wonderful, and yet we can't imagine our lives without it. Thus, Baldwin implies, we've let ourselves into a spiritual snare. He didn't, however, live to see how it would start threatening our very planetary existence, as now, most disturbingly, it is in the process of destroying our home. Baldwin traced another line of prophetic thought when he argued that we will be in for an existential reckoning, a crashing of the tower, if I can be astrological about it, if so-called white people do not discover why we needed to create the demon that we project onto people of color. When Justin Trudeau dresses up in blackface, or when we wear our feathered headdresses to our music festivals, or when we march in the street to defend our European heritage against all the non-whites diluting our country, we're talking about ourselves. We're revealing something hideous about ourselves that we don't wish to understand, so we project it onto the other, who becomes the object of our mockery and hatred, when it's really ourselves who we mock and hate thereby. Baldwin argued that if we failed to understand this and what it means, the foundations of our civilization would be called into question, and even threatened, as indeed they now have. And if you think it's wrong to intertwine Canada in the United States this way, just look a few weeks into the past to the nationwide protests that were shutting down our economy in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en, the indigenous nations of this land we stole and called Canada, were bringing our economy to its knees because we so self-righteously keep failing to recognize the true history of our relationship with this land. It's shocking what's happening in the United States right now, and I don't mean the rioting sparked by the stone-faced public lynching of George Floyd. It's that even the mainstream media outlets, 
who helped Trump get elected by giving him so much media coverage in 2016 because it was good for their ratings, are now starting to argue that Trump is attempting to become a fascist dictator. This has, of course, always been his mentality, and it's just been a question of whether he could pull it off, but it's significant that even MSNBC and CNN are starting to talk like this, amidst a crackdown on protests in which news reporters across the country are being violently attacked and targeted by police as they simply do their job of filming and reporting what's happening in the streets. There are now curfews in 40 cities. The National Guard has been called into at least 23 states and Washington, D.C. And on Monday, June 1st, after Trump threatened the lives of protesters, said they had to be dominated, and announced that he was bringing in the military, his Attorney General William Barr personally ordered the police to assault and tear gas protesters out front of the White House so that Trump could march to the facade of a boarded-up church, wield a Bible for the cameras, and talk about how excellent he is going to make America. As he walked back to the White House, he ignored a reporter who asked if it was still a democracy. Trump is now invoking an ancient Greek titaness, representing divine order, with his Operation Themis, which is what he is calling the military operation that he is planning to carry out against his own citizens. In response to Trump's actions, Trudeau simply stated that uh, racial discrimination happens all the time in Canada too, and did not mention Trump at all. And this is why the climate justice movement is the most cogent of all strains of environmentalism. The climate justice movement recognizes that to fix our relationship with ecosystems, we need a systemic overhaul that is not possible without a critique of our economically driven materialist society as a whole. It's therefore the only environmentalism that can address the imminent threat of worldwide ecological collapse in the face of the three compounding disasters of the COVID pandemic, growing international fascism, and the massive and widening gap between rich and poor. And with that, we're going to turn to a clip of James Baldwin addressing the West Indian Student Center in London in 1968. One of the most terrible things, well, one of the most difficult things, because it is something which one has, it wants to resist, as he has said, and also to use, is that in fact, whether I like it or not, I am an American. Now, that is not, I'm not Lyndon Johnson, and I'm not saying that as, you know, I am an American. I don't mean that, no. <laughs> Alas, I mean something very different. <laughs> but I do mean that I was formed in a certain crucible. My school really was the streets of New York City. My frame of reference was um, George Washington and John Wayne. You know, uh, <laughs> I don't know how you discover what it means to be black in London, but I know what it means, how you discover that in New York, and then throughout the entire country. And I know how, as you grow older, you watch in the richest city in the world, you know, and the most, the most famous, the richest, freest nation in the world, in the Western world, I know how you watch as you grow older, literally, and this is not a figure of speech, the corpses of your brothers and your sisters pile up around you, and not for anything they have done. They were too young to have done anything, in any case too helpless. But what one does realize is that when you try to stand up and look the world in the face like you had a right to be here. When you do that, without knowing that this is the result of it, you have attacked the entire power structure of the Western world. If I one fine day discover that I have been lied to all the years of my life, and my mother and my father were being lied to, if I discover that in fact 
though I was bred and bought and sold like a mule. But I never really was a mule. If I discover that I was never really happy picking all that cotton and digging in all those mines to make other people rich, and if I discover that those songs the darkies sang and sing were not just the innocent expressions of a primitive people, but extremely subtle and difficult dangerous and tragic expressions of what it felt like to be in chains. Then by one's presence, simply, by the attempt to walk from here to there, you have begun to frighten the white world. They have always known that you were not a mule. They have always known that no one wishes to be a slave. They have always known that the bales of cotton and the, and the textile mills and entire metropolises built on black labor, that the black was not doing it out of love. He was doing it under the whip. The threat of the, the, threat of the gun and the even more desperate and subtle threat of the Bible. I am David Hostetter, and uh, we're with Stefan Hostetter and Lauren Latour. And uh, after this segment, Stefan is going to have an interview with M.A. Ma, the executive director of Toronto Environmental Alliance, about uh, Toronto's uh, just recovery. Well, about their work towards getting Toronto to a just recovery. Their work towards Toronto it. yet has, has yet to declare that they are going for that. Uh-huh. And uh, right now, though, we are going to turn to an article in the National Observer that was published uh, and written by Emily Gilpin uh, called, If Life Before This Was Normal, I Don't Want to Go Back. And in it, she writes, quote, If uh, normal refers to life before COVID-19, then normal across North and South America meant the ongoing targeted murder and imprisonment of black, brown, and indigenous people and people of color. Normal meant the ongoing expansion of unfettered capitalism, the destruction of the planet, gross inequality, and the dominance of a profit over people culture across the globe. Regarding the fallout of the killing of George Floyd, Gilpin quotes Angela Davis, who said in, in a 1970 interview, quote, Because of the way this society is organized, because of the violence that exists on the surface everywhere, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. You have to expect these things as reactions. When you talk about a revolution, most people think violence, without realizing that the real content of any kind of revolutionary th thrust uh, lies in the goals, you are, the goals you are striving for, not in the ways you reach them. Gilpin goes on to point out that indigenous peoples make 5% of the global population, but protect 80% of the world's biodiversity because they are carrying forward ancient knowledge systems that, if understood properly, could represent real and serious solutions to the environmental crisis. Yeah, so... My first recommendation is is to actually go and read Emily's entire piece. It it may not come as a great surprise, but I think it is both timely and perhaps the most uh, holistic call I, I I think for for what the the world needs um, in in regards to the the it's it's understanding of our current scenarios as well as the with the backdrop of, of of you know the fact that we're still in a pandemic which you may have forgotten this week given all that is going on uh but and so and, and, I, and I want to come back actually to this to the just recovery piece but first uh, i want to state directly and emphatically uh, that if your climate action is not also anti-racist you're on the wrong side of history and i say that specifically because often you hear arguments 
being that the climate uh, must include justice because it's a good strategy uh, or that it helps build a broader coalition. But to allow yourself to hold that view is to state that you care more about your particular issue than the lives of the people you're you're saying you're allies to it it, it almost it gives up the game that you are being a uh, you are a false ally you know the reason why climate action must be synonymous with climate justice is because justice and its corollaries of love and empathy are the only causes worth fighting for period uh, you know and I, I do want to get the just recovery but i want to go to you first lauren yeah no um this was a really great piece and within it um emily like captures a lot of really really fantastic ideas um and yeah i don't want to dig in too much into the into the just recovery um stuff because i know you're we're, there's room to talk about that later and you're also going to elaborate on that with uh, in your interview but um yeah the the part where angela davis is quoted she, she's quoted a couple times um and and one of the things that actually David already mentioned, but it's that idea that sort of uh, what's revolutionary isn't necessarily our tactic choice, um, though there is definitely a very um, sort of vigorous debate currently happening around tactic choice. Um, but uh, what's really revolutionary is sort of the goals that you have in mind and those revolutionary ideals that you're fighting for. And I think that is what is... I, we, I think we talked, maybe it was last week, God, it seems like a lifetime ago, but sort of like things that are making us feel hopeful. And I know it's really, really hard to find hope in these moments um, because we're seeing such intense and egregious violence um, imposed on people in the streets the last, what, seven, eight days now? Um, in addition to the pandemic that uh, I know I have forgotten about, at least on a couple occasions this week, <laughs> that that was even happening. Um, and then in addition to sort of just like the existential crisis that is that is climate change hanging over us all the time. But I guess what I was what I'm trying to get at is that um, what does give me hope about the actions that we're seeing taking taking place right now is that they do come from a position of sort of like radical revolutionary dreaming and ideas and all of these amazing things that we're fighting for because we know are possible, right? Nobody takes to the streets in anger and distress because, because they have lost all hope, right? With, with this showing of millions and millions of people fighting for the things that they know they deserve and the things that they believe in, that shows me that that world is still very much possible and that we're like actively working towards it as a society. So I think it's, it's really easy for us to throw up our hands and say like, oh, America sucks. Oh, Canada sucks. And to be, to be sure, they do. They are ultimately rooted <laughs> in really, really horrible systems of oppression. But the fact that there's so many millions of us who are actively working to, to, to build the kind of futures and the kind of societies and the kind of livelihoods that we know we deserve is incredibly uplifting. And I actually didn't know that that's where I was going to go with that thought, but I'm glad I kind of ended up reaching that. I, yeah, I, <laughs> I agree. Um, and, and I think that to me, the, the other piece of this that I think needs to be highlighted is we've talked forever on the show about uh, how difficult it actually would be to live a moral life in our current system. You know, like the, like the number of times that I've sort of, you know, I've thought about like, I think at one point we had a whole conversation about the blood that is in every piece of clothing that we wear because of the way that our system currently works or, or, or just how many different parts of our world require oppression to carry on in the way that they are currently for us to be able to afford the things we have at the price we have them is is to me what makes this kind of moment more hopeful because in these moments suddenly there seems to be a window or a way or a set of people who are clearly responding to a moment saying that something has to change and 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 and, and while it might be more disruptive right now and 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 it certainly is much more taxing on 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 anyone's you know daily system uh, especially those who are on the streets, uh, you know, in in in, the, in especially in the states. You know, we were in the protest uh, in Toronto on on Saturday, but it's very very different in the places that are you know having the police response that we're seeing. But but I think that there's still this is closer than where we were when nothing was happening. You know, like like in the middle of 2018 when everyone was just going on about their daily lives, we were much further away from justice. I would say than we might be now. And I think that's the piece that that I'm holding on to a little bit right now. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, the fact that um, I know this is this is actually just a post that I saw today. We we record on Wednesday, so by the time folks hear it, it'll have been up for a while. But um, the the Leap organization um, came out with a really really awesome series of posts today that basically pose alternatives to um, to a policing organization because there's a lot of talk right now, and it's really really fantastic that there's so much talk about abolition of the police force and tangentially abolition of um, of a prison system, which is really cool because up until I don't know a few months ago, even a few weeks ago, concepts of police force abolition were were quite fringe and weren't necessarily being discussed on mainstream news, which we which we've seen which they are um really awesome radical thinkers like i think robin maynard was featured on on maybe cbc recently desmond cole has been on cbc and like that's obviously just the the canadian context these speakers are obviously coming out full force in the states as well but but we're we're getting average everyday people really well acquainted with concepts of things like police abolition and showing that there are alternatives and and i know like some of the ones that the leap came out with it's like yes, you're in distress. Maybe you, you are in a space with somebody who, who is um, potentially behaving erratically, potentially putting themselves or yourself in harm's way. You can call up a number, potentially links to the city, and instead of sending a police officer with a weapon, they send a social worker and somebody who's trained in tactics of de-escalation and, and sort of building safety in a given situation and how awesome that is. And it's like, I think for so long, for hundreds of years, we were locked into this paradigm whereby you need a police force in order to protect people. And what we're sort of actually discussing right now is the reality that police's, police forces don't protect the average person, really. Not now, nor have they ever. So let's maybe come up with that. Let's come up with solutions. Let's come up with new ideas. Let's come up with new ways of protecting ourselves that don't result in harm being inflicted on so many people as a, as a direct result of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So no. that's really cool to see, if nothing else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. And and the the quick tie I'll make before we go on to the next uh, next conversation is 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 just how much you know it, the the decrease of policing is not just uh, does not does not end from the fact that the police are no longer armed people. It then also means that you will that means that there are fewer people being forced into the carceral state or in the for profit prison system and and the ways that those systems are currently using people as very cheap labor basically like you know we've talked about how California is using prisoners to be their firefighters you know like if you don't want to live like this it, it it's one of those things that starts you it starts with this concept of like what if there are fewer police but it actually cascades down in a whole bunch of other ways that that would have widespread uh potential benefits uh, or just benefits straight up not potential but like if if you were able to also decrease prison populations and actually require people to pay people amounts of money to 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 do all these things that are real jobs that we've decided we can just give away to prisoners because we've decided they're less than you know it's 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 all connected here um but uh, let's go on to the let's get into a little more climate but still related so in general environmental news, the U.S. has now officially greatly cut back on its Clean Water Act by making it harder for states to oppose pipelines and other energy projects. New public land rules in the U.S. will allow hunters in Alaska to kill bear cubs, wolf pups, and coyote pups in their dens. And this at a time when scientists are warning that the sixth mass extinction is accelerating. New research has found that humans have played a significant role in precipitating the second-worst mega-drought in North America since the 9th century. Russia has declared a state of emergency because 20,000 tons of diesel has been spilled into the Embarnaya River in Siberia, uh, which is currently going through a record-breaking heat wave, accelerating Siberian permafrost thaw. The COVID pandemic has caused the cancellation of the UN climate talks this year, and a massive cyclone has wrecked havoc on Bangladesh and India, and no one is talking about it. Over 100 people have died, millions have been displaced, crops and livelihoods have been destroyed, billions of dollars have been lost, and as Jan Wesner Childs reported for Weather.com this week, quote, Vast swaths of the world's largest mangrove forest, a UNESCO World Heritage Site in the Sadarban uh, Delta that spans parts of India and Bangladesh, were dealt a potentially devastating blow when tropical cyclone Amphan crashed over the coasts of both countries. As Mary Anais Hegler wrote uh, this week in Hot Take, quote, 
On top of that, of course, there was the coronavirus quarantine orders that had to be turned into evacuation orders. The areas hardest hit are home to many, many migrant workers still trying to navigate their way home from places like Delhi after the country went on lockdown in March. On top of that, you factor in that these areas are home to some of the biggest settlements of already traumatized and perilously vulnerable Rohingya refugees. Hegler goes on to argue that the almost total lack of media coverage of the cyclone is inhumane and inexcusable, since no one's going to help if no one knows about it. As 19-year-old S. M. Shaheen Alam from southern Bangladesh who has seen four major cyclones in 12 years, said in an interview with Deutsche Welle, quote, We told authorities several times that the dikes were neither repaired nor elevated after the 2009 cyclone. They didn't do anything about it. Sometimes I feel that the international community has also abandoned us. They have left, uh, they have left us to die slowly. The West is largely responsible for global warming, which has resulted in higher sea levels. We are the ones who have to suffer because of it. Still, we don't see any international initiative for our protection. It's it's hard to argue with him, uh, you know, despite how much you sort of might want to not believe that that statement. But the cyclone caused you know thirteen billion dollars of damages, and four point two million people were displaced. Like, can you imagine if, if can you imagine the coverage of ba if basically all of New Zealand had to leave New Zealand? Like, if that was what happened, it's, I will admit, anyone who's to fact check me, New Zealand is 4.8 million, not 4.2 million. But I think that's pretty close enough for the point that I'm making, which is that, you know, the failure to cover AMFAM is a climate justice issue in the same way that, you know, the fact that why, why Western governments can drag their feet on climate action uh, or why Western media doesn't seem to care about cyclones that, you know, cyclones that as much as they care about hurricanes is because those people currently bearing the heaviest burden don't look like the people are in power. You know, it's, it's racism, plain and simple. And that is why that is one of the major reasons why I think we're seeing we're allowing so much dragging feet of action. You know, if if 4.2 million Americans were required to be leaving their homes every year due to due to hurricanes, uh, you know, which again, it's getting close to that, but it isn't there yet. I I think it'd be different, and it's certainly not now. But Lauren, yeah, absolutely. Um, no, and I and I think it sort of is is doubly so. I think some might argue that oh, the story isn't being covered because of COVID. Oh, the story isn't being covered now because of now because of the unrest that's happening in the States, to put it lightly. But we have to remember, and the point was made within the article that, that we're referencing, that the Cyclone Amphan story is a COVID story because it's not only four million, four some odd million people being displaced. It's four million people being displaced during a pandemic. It's 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 entire communities that are going from then the way the author of the, the way the author of the piece phrased it was going from quarantine to evacuation and how extreme those two states are. And I cannot imagine going through an evacuation like that, let alone having to precede it with a quarantine. So, so the excuse that, oh, we're going through a pandemic right now, we don't have time or we don't have capacity to cover these stories is um, BS, to put it in a radio <laughs> way. Um, made doubly so when you remember that the week that, that Cyclone Amphan was hitting ground and taking lives and um, unseating so many people was the same week that the media found time to report on the name of Elon Musk's baby, report on the name change to Elon Musk's baby, to report on Lana Del Rey saying silly things on Instagram, to report on like Allison Roman saying silly things in an, in, in, in an interview and on Twitter. So we can always find space to, 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 re to report on silly things and frivolous things. It only ever seems to sort of like the rubber only hits the road and we're only told that there's a limited amount of reporting capacity when it comes to stories like this. Um, because yes, you're right. This is damage and harm being inflicted on black and brown people at the hands of white people. Yes, it is a cyclone. It is a quote unquote natural disaster, but we know that the frequency and the intensity of these quote unquote natural disasters have been exacerbated by actions of white people in 
wealthy Western countries. So we are responsible for these deaths. We are responsible for these people being unseated. Um, and this is exactly why we do need to have an intersectional climate justice-based lens to to our climate activism. Yeah, and and international too, right? Like, and and one that sort of addresses the fact that that it's not it would not be enough for every individual country to come up with its own. Uh, well, like yes, every country will come up with its own, but if it only if the recovery only ever considers or the Green New Deal say only ever considers itself internally, then you are allowing these types of things to perpetuate. You know, it's it's not like. It's not like the these people, uh, because there's a pandemic, are not more as in need of help as any of the people who have been hit by cyclones or other types of famines previously. Uh, you know, it's it's all it's all within the same range. Welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our wonderful radio syndicates across the country, or maybe on the podcast, which you can be found on greenmajority.ca. Uh, we're here uh, with M.A. Ma, the executive director of the Toronto Environmental Alliance, and for longtime listeners, a former uh, correspondent and co-host of ours. M.A., welcome. Thanks, Stefan. It's great to be back. How are you feeling about the state of the world? Seems like seems like mm -hmm. a loaded question. So, So maybe it's more like a question of, where do you see this moment in history? And yeah, how are you feeling and, and, and what, where we're at? Well, I have to say that it does feel momentous and that doesn't need to be taken entirely in a positive way. I think I'd be remiss not to acknowledge the struggle for black lives that is happening right now. Um, the fight against anti-black racism, which has been ongoing and has definitely come to the forefront across the world, um, in particular in the United States, here in Canada, but also other places um, in solidarity. And in addition to that, when we're looking at where we are in terms of what the pandemic has laid bare in our society and really highlighting existing inequity, it feels like a great opportunity to never go back um, to what caused that inequity um, and major issues that you and I have been tackling around climate justice and really move forward with a certain type of momentum. Yes, it comes from a very challenging place, but it feels like the right time to really galvanize people around building the kind of society we want. That you sort of almost answered my second question, but I'm gonna answer, ask it anyways, because I'd love to see you, you know, maybe expand on it. Um, with that sort of framing as, as, as that, you know, as you so eloquently put that the issues are, of issues of society are being laid bare, uh, how does that influence your thinking about how we should respond, you know, to this crisis? Well, I think many of the folks that have been involved in looking at, you know, what does a just response recovery and rebuild look like, have tried to anchor that thinking in people first sort of a people first approach. And for it to be people first, there has to be true participation from communities to shape the way forward based on priorities that are important to different communities. And some of those will be shared across different communities and some of those will be specific to where people live. So that really means it's incumbent on different levels of government to design processes where meaningful engagement actually happens um, around the priorities that get shaped and put into strategy as we move forward. Obviously, I realized actually that a bit of framing on, 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 your, on your organization might be helpful for those folks who are not, um, who are not from Toronto. Can you explain what, what the Toronto Environmental Alliance uh, is, is all about? Yes, thanks, Stefan. I'm happy to do that. So Toronto Environmental Alliance, otherwise known as T, has been around for over 30 years. We've been doing advocacy and community work uh, focused on municipal level of government. So we look to positively influence environmental policy and programs at city level. 
We engage with community members through our projects, which try to model the change that we want to see in the world. And we've been quite focused on both, you know, climate justice and, you know, waste and circular economy issues over the last couple of years. Cool. Uh, so, so there's the context. So let's talk about your, the organization uh, T's plan uh, for a just recovery for Toronto. But let's start, it, was, it wasn't just you, it was a broader coalition. So how did that coalition come together and who is involved? Yeah, so it's not a formal coalition, but it's certainly a collaboration of organizations that have some shared values when it comes to, you know, their focus on the city, municipal level. And so what happened is we all sort of convened rapidly, knowing that the city was going to look at the recovery pathway, and the city has since established the Office of Recovery and Rebuild. And we wanted to put together a submission that reflected our shared values and one that was holistic. So we wanted to avoid the pitfalls of saying only this one area is important, and that's the only thing because, say, T is an environmental organization, we're only going to focus on climate and the environment. No, we wanted to see a broad-based platform put forward because that's what we feel the city needs to advance. So we got together um, and brought our own organizational perspectives quite rapidly and, you know, built out a platform that has 10 key points. Um, And some of them speak to, you know, things that are really uh, fundamental uh, for communities around housing and food and things like that. Others talk about the process of like I had spoken about earlier of community engagement and enabling people to participate in decision-making and that kind of thing. So there's a whole range of things that are in this platform that we quite quickly put together and submitted to the city. Right. Right. Let's hear them. What are, what are the, what are the 10, the 10 recommendations? Well, I won't read them all out now, um, but maybe I will give you a link uh, to circulate to listeners, but I can highlight a few. So just um, in terms of, looking at the community focused one number one it says for best results ensure the recovery and rebuilding process is transparent and community-led so that's really important and of course we have these fleshed out in terms of meaning that i won't as i say read it all out to you other areas just to highlight as an example um, number four is fast track and improve toronto's existing strategies plans and commitments in toronto's recovery and rebuilding plans in order to build a more equitable healthy and climate resilient city. So there's a lot in there. But for those of you that follow, you know, municipal politics and policy, Toronto has made a lot of commitments. Um, There's a climate emergency declaration that committed Toronto to getting on a pathway to zero carbon emissions. We have a poverty reduction strategy. We have a housing strategy. So every time the city develops these strategies and past commitments at council that creates an obligation to live up to these very important things. And we want to make sure that the recovery process is really addressing these. It's a big opportunity as resources are invested in actions in recovery to also address multiple goals that will benefit communities in the process. Cool. Um, and any others or shall I start with those two? A third one you want to highlight perhaps? Well, I'll just pick number six, and they're all important, so this feels a little arbitrary to me, but um, for the themes of this show, I'll pick number six, which is prioritize low-carbon infrastructure, social procurement, and equitable local job creation in recovery and rebuilding. So the city itself, um, despite funding challenges, does have a lot of agency and how it spends its money. So for example, social procurement policy and process, obviously you can choose to invest locally um, in terms of how you procure goods and services for the city. If there are gonna be job creation strategies going forward, obviously these will need contributions from other levels of government, but the city can set the tone in terms of what the priorities are and how they address the needs of folks that in this time and on an ongoing basis experience employment barriers, for example. So if we're looking at building a green job strategy, let's proactively include folks um, who've experienced barriers so that we can also address priorities in the poverty reduction strategy as one example. Often these principles aren't ordered in the, in the sense of uh, importance. Uh, you know, that, that, that's been a common theme in these different recoveries. It's like, no, there's just, this is just the list we happen to make. It's not like one is the most important and, and 10 can be you know, put aside. Uh, but it is interesting that it starts with, you know, this sort of overarching goal of having it transparent and community-led. That sort of feels like that goal almost 
trickles down through the other nine in, in a sort of direct way. Um, why do you think that's, that's so important? It's so important when different levels of government are making decisions that those be driven by the people that they're intended to serve. And unfortunately, so often we see examples of just this kind of perfunctory approach to consultation. Consultation can even become a bad word um, because it's there, it's, you know, paying lip service to a process that actually should be quite deep. And for the city to truly understand people's needs and priorities, there needs to be like a deep discourse and a dialogue. And this, this need existed before, um, but even more so now when there are, are choices that lie ahead on the recovery pathway, it's going to be even more important. And the outcome can only be good, I think, in terms of listening to people and their priorities, because then, you know, the resources we have can be aligned to those and really be effective. Cool. The second one um, is interesting because we have already seen some fast tracking of some uh, some particular parts of, of, of city budget planning, specifically uh, around cycle uh, bike lanes and and more active infrastructure, uh, given that giving people more space mm -hmm. to, to get out and be outside and also move themselves from place to place. And I'm curious uh, about your sort of read on on where uh, on, on how council has responded so far and and what you sort of anticipate being the, the, the either the big the big opportunities or maybe the big hurdles of getting some of these things you know passed and and actually done. Well, I'm looking for deeper commitments. To be honest, um, there were some motions passed that were positive. The bike lanes one was one of them. Um, there was also an element of applying you know a, a climate type lens to recovery plans, which was positive for sure. Um, but we need to start seeing concrete commitments being laid um, from the city, particularly when it comes to negotiating with other levels of government. So, for example, things that need to be carried forward from the past into this new future that we're building. One example is looking at buildings. Um, there's an enormous need and there's been commitments around retrofitting um, the city's building stock. And there lies a huge opportunity to create jobs that can be extended to a whole different range of skilled trades. But we also need support to bring people into those trades. So there are programs that exist um, that are doing that. Those need to be connected. We need to bring more people in those, into those trades. And we also need to look at it from a resilience perspective. It's really important around addressing shocks that the physical places where people live are secure, safe, and healthy in, and, you know, looking at um, other types of shocks that can happen, like extreme weather, like, you know, we're potentially going into a season where there can be extreme heat. We've had a few very hot days. We need to make sure that people's living space um, is safe and healthy for them from that perspective. So there can be what we'd call a triple win, maybe it's a quadruple win, um, around, you know, weather, jobs, climate action, and people living with dignity. Yeah, man, it's interesting. I, on the show and in other places a couple times, I've come back to this concept of, of when these, the federal government especially has said a whole bunch of things about quote-unquote shovel-ready opportunities. And, and, and then a lot of the pushback is like, well, it's hard to see a lot of environment stuff right now as being super shovel-ready because they are usually longer-term you know, planning projects or, or transit and stuff like that, that you can't just start doing right away. But retrofits is such an obvious answer to me for so many reasons. You know, the fact that they can reduce the cost for the, for the, for the building operation itself, it can reduce the burden on, you know, on energy that comes from the, from the province even, you know, like that was the thing that stuck with me. I remember from, from a long time, which was in relation to the fact that energy the cheapest way to supply new energy was to actually make buildings need less. The importance of having supporting good shovel-ready projects, like you've highlighted, Stefan, but also not pressing the pause button on things that are essential, but maybe complex and take more time. We know that building a workforce, like it's going to be much needed in the foreseeable future, you know, all the way 
um, in the following decades to 2030, 2050. So now's the, not the time to pause the button on those kind of capacity building, mentorship, training, those kinds of initiatives. Now's the time to ramp that up. And the pandemic should not be used as an excuse in recovery um, in the context of investing resources to limit opportunity around that workforce. Of course, we'll look to you know public health to determine when it's safe to resume certain types of training activities, but over the longer term, we should not see that this was a time period where that kind of initiative lagged because people didn't feel it was important to resume when we were able to resume it. Right. What do you want to see from the city in regards to what it's asking from the feds uh, or the province? What sort of, what do you want to see them bringing forward in their, in their asks? Well, I think there's a couple of dimensions. One we've talked about, which is to bring forward uh, robust and meaningful asks. They actually need to do the work with, you know, communities. Um, so talk to people. The other thing is on portfolios that are ongoing, you know, like transit and housing. We know we need a much higher level of investment um, than we've been getting from other levels of government. Um, transit, public transit, the TTC has been particularly hard hit. Uh, we've seen a lot of people lose their jobs. We need to see that reversed. We need more public transit. We need higher frequency so that we can have well, you know, spaced out vehicles where people can sit far apart but still take transit in a, in a safe manner. And housing, we've talked about, that requires huge investment. Um, from a big picture perspective, I think we see an ongoing challenge with the fact um, that you alluded to before, which is cities cannot raise sufficient revenue on their own. They have not been granted the powers to do that by the provinces. Um, and we need to see a new type of arrangement, call it a new deal around revenue tools for cities. Because even before the pandemic hit and before cities were losing millions of dollars, uh, there was still a massive revenue challenge around the growing needs of cities. So that needs to be addressed. Uh, anything short of addressing the revenue problem will be a band-aid solution going into the future. And this is a good time to start addressing it now. It needed to be addressed ages ago, but we need to push for it now, especially. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how often the word revenue tools can be said uh, in any particular meeting, but it certainly feels, uh, well, well, I think any type of crisis like this sort of shows how, you know, I don't know how people know the fact that cities are not allowed to run deficits. And so there's not even a way for the city to be able to sort of say, okay, we're going to take a hit this, this month, this year to plan for next. They, they're legally structured is not allowed to do that. And so they are forced to basically like, you know, they have to make the cuts if they can't raise the revenue and they only have like three types of revenue tools. Um, I know there was a discussion previously about trying to allow the cities, at least Toronto, to take a percentage of the gas tax that would be in within the city. But I, I presume they would have had to ask for the, the, the province to allow them that. And I guess they never got around to it. We've heard announcement um, around the federal government extending some of the gas tax revenues, hmm. um, particularly in the context of transit. Um, but I don't think that that really addresses some of the broader like structural things that you and I have been speaking about. Stefan. Cool. Um, okay, so uh, so here's the so someone has now listened to this uh, thing, uh, this this podcast. I almost called it a thing, uh, radio <laughs> show, whatever we are doing here, um, and and they're looking to to get involved. They you know there's these asks and these pushes, and we're we're in this moment that we've identified of of, of potential great change, and so people are looking for ways to, to sort of be a part of that. If they want to be a part of that locally in, in the Toronto context. How can they do that? I mean, there are a number of good avenues. Of course, I have to share uh, T's information. So, you know, T does engage both, you know, individuals and community groups um, and put forward opportunities. Um, and we will certainly be doing that for, you know, our Just Recovery campaign. So you can visit our website and sign on um, to our email list at torontoenvironment.org. So that's one way to get involved and we certainly will be reaching out and we do need help um, from folks across the city. There are other great initiatives happening. Uh, 350.org um, is running a teach-in uh, just recovery initiative. So that enables folks to organize their own groups and hold community virtual teach-ins at this point. Um, 
So that's at 350.org. I strongly encourage people to get civically involved, to reach out to their local councillor and, you know, members of parliament, uh, members of provincial parliament, um, and really make their voices heard around what their expectations are on the way forward. The more our political representatives hear from us, the better. Uh, we really need to amplify these messages around what really matters and, uh, you know, compel them to listen because they're there to work for us. Amazing. So I'm going to end this with uh, one question, which I've asked my last few interviewees and uh, and it's mostly for me, to be perfectly honest. I actually, I don't know whether or not our listeners are like, I always love that question, but it helps me. And so I keep asking it, which is, you know, I at least personally have not been living through a time that has felt as, as uncertain as right now. And so during this time of, of such uncertainty, what I've begun to, to hold on to is, is this question of what brings you hope? given everything there, that, that is out there, the more opportunities for people to find pieces of hope, uh, I think are, uh, are valuable. And so with that prelude in, you know, you can pause for the entire 21 seconds Justin Trudeau did today, trying to, trying to answer his question about whether or not he's going to condemn Trump's use of tear gas and peaceful protesters, uh, or you can answer right away. But what brings you hope? Well, I could answer that question really quickly, but I think that's not the question you want me to answer. <laughs> hope, um, hope, I find that in many places these days, though it is very hard, one is the human impulse to help other people has been really beautiful. Um, we've really seen this desire of people to help their neighbors, to support frontline workers, um, to celebrate people that are on the front lines. Um, we've seen these mutual aid and support networks spring up or other existing groups repurpose themselves or reorient themselves to, to support their neighbors. So that's really hopeful. And then I'd say the last thing is consciousness gives me hope. I think that more and more of us are conscious of this moment we're in and wanting to turn it into much more than a moment, but a long-term pathway forward that looks different than the trajectory we were on as a society. So it's just amazing and inspiring to see this collective consciousness of really bringing to the forefront what does and should matter in the future. Amazing. Thank you so much. If people want to follow T or your work, where else can they follow? Well, all of our channels are on our website, so I'll give that, or, or can be connected to off our website, so I'll give our URL again. It's torontoenvironment.org. Please check us out. We'd love to be connected with you. Thanks so much, Emma Ma, Executive Director of T. Have a, have a wonderful day.